Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings 19, this morning we are looking at the first 13 verses. Please give your full attention to the word of God. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhakah, king of Cush, Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, and the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? I was a small child during the height of the Cold War. And I remember, as many who are as old as I am or older, will remember the films that they would show in elementary school about, and these were prepared by our government and sent to the schools to help us prepare for that day, if and when it might happen, when Russia would drop the atomic bomb on us. And those films told us that when we heard the sirens or saw the flash of the bomb going off, we were to crawl underneath our desks with our heads down and our hands over our heads on the floor, duck and cover. That was our preparation, duck and cover. Of course, then the films would go on to show this huge, massive, destructive blast of heat wiping out entire metropolitan areas and turning it into ash. And even at six or seven years old, I understood that my desk wouldn't be a lot of protection against that. (laughs) But protection and 
preparation to be protected is a good thing. The terrorist bombs that are going off today aren't as powerful as the atomic bombs that we feared, but the possibility of being affected by one of them seems a lot greater, and the possibility seems greater and greater every day. Disaster preparation is a good thing, right Josh? Our our Josh Troxell makes that a living out of helping Penn State prepare for tragedy and disaster. It's a good thing to think through how we can be prepared when disaster comes. But let me ask you this morning, how prepared are you spiritually for disaster? How prepared are you spiritually for disaster? I guarantee you that large and small disasters are coming your way. And a lot of people around us who look very well put together and look like they've got it all under control will fall apart very quickly when faced with a significant disaster. Job, within a very short period of time, lost all of his possessions, lost all of his family, and lost almost all of his health. And yet, Scripture tells us his response to that tragedy beyond anything you and I have ever faced. His response was, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's faith. That's what faith looks like in the face of tragedy. But how do you get faith like that? Where does it come from? Proverbs 24, verse 16 says, The righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumbles in times of calamity. There is something that must be different about the people of faith, the people of Jesus Christ, when they face tragedy and disaster. There must be something different. What is it that enables us to stand in the face of such things? We're looking at Hezekiah. We've been looking at him for a few weeks. We're going to look at him for a few weeks more. And he is a man of God who faced impending doom. As we have seen it described in these recent chapters. We saw how after the fall of the northern kingdom of Jerusalem to the barbaric empire, the evil empire of Assyria. How after the northern kingdom, the northernmost people of God had fallen and been had been dispersed over the empire, never to be seen again as a nation, we saw how Hezekiah, in God's providence, came to the throne in Jerusalem over the smaller segment of God's people called Judah. And how we saw a couple weeks ago how he entered into one of the greatest times of reformation in the history of God's people when he cleaned out the temple, got rid of all evidences of paganism and idolatry, and reestablished Worship as God designed it in the temple and reestablished grace and the covenant of grace at the center of the religious life of the people. But we saw that the Lord responded to his faith in carrying out this great reformation in Jerusalem. The Lord responded by sending a test of his faith. And we said that that's not unlike the Lord. That after a great time of victory, that our faith may be tested. And the test that Hezekiah faced 
was unthinkable in human terms. He was facing the most powerful empire on earth. King Sennacherib of Assyria, after having destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, had swept through Judah, taking out fortified city after fortified city after fortified city to the point where he was ready to lay siege to Jerusalem. And as we will see in the coming weeks, he had a massive force. Humanly speaking, Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem had no chance before Assyria. And we saw last week how in his arrogance, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent a delegation led by his spokesman, and he stood outside the walls of Jerusalem and mocked Hezekiah, mocked Hezekiah's faith in the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and mocked Yahweh himself. And then he invited the people from the walls of Jerusalem who could hear his taunts, he invited them to either come on over, surrender to to the king of Assyria, and come to the promised land of Assyria, where he promised to provide for all of their physical needs, or die an horrific death. That was their choice. And that's where we ended the story last week, and we ended, obviously, with a cliffhanger. Matter of fact, almost every preaching passage, as we work our way through this, almost every preaching passage is going to end with a cliffhanger. I used to watch a lot of 24 Every 24 show ended with Jack Bauer facing impending doom, and you were on the edge of your seat waiting for the next show to start so you could find out how he got out of it. I'm not the one keeping you hooked here. This is God's word, Uh, but he's keeping you hooked to say, how is the Lord going to deliver? Here we see how Hezekiah responded to this incredible challenge to his faith. And I think the Lord would have us look at his example to say, how can we prepare? I think speaking for the vast majority of us here in this room, we are living in a time of ease and comfort and prosperity. You may be facing real trials, but compared to what the reality that Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem faced, this is an easy time for us. How can we be sure that if we were to face a disaster, that we would be able to stand by faith. What does that look like? And we're going to learn some things from Hezekiah. What did he do when faced with a disaster so that we can prepare to respond in the same way? Normally, when we preach expository sermons, we and we're preaching out of the Old Testament, we try to avoid pointing to Old Testament saints and saying, be like that person. Because most of the time you're saying, don't be like that person. Because the scriptures are very uh, clear about the flaws, the sins, the weaknesses, the failures in faith in the Old Testament. But there is one way in which we are to look to the great men and women of faith in the Old Testament and be like them. And it's in regard to their faith. And I, I know I'm on solid ground with that because that's what chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is all about. It's about all the great men and women of the faith that God worked in and through to accomplish his purposes. But the focus of Hebrews 11 is not on their deeds, but it's on their faith in the Lord. And that's the beautiful thing about looking to somebody who's stronger in faith than you are 
And looking to them as an example is that the glory doesn't go to the person because it's not faith that's so great. It's what is the basis of that faith? Remember the question last week, a couple weeks ago from Hezekiah, on what do you rest this trust of yours? The object of faith gets the glory when we look at these great men and women of faith. And so Hezekiah was a man of great faith. What can we learn to prepare for the tragedies, disasters, small or great, that we're going to face in life? First thing that Hezekiah does, notice what he does. First thing, verse 1, he puts on sackcloth. He puts on sackcloth. Verse 1, he tears his clothes. Now think about it. Hezekiah was not wearing some polo shirt from Kohl's at this moment. He's wearing the robes of a king. Expensive robes, royal robes, and he tears them and puts them off, which is an act of humility, an act that recognizes that his hope for deliverance lay not in his office or his wealth or his splendor. And in in place of those royal robes, he places on his body sackcloth. Now, you can't go to Kohl's and buy sackcloth these days. Matter of fact, the New Testament doesn't really talk about putting on sackcloth. It's an Old Testament practice, an Old Testament tradition. And we're not ever commanded to put sackcloth on, but sackcloth was something developed among the people of God in the Old Testament as a way of expressing a certain attitude towards God. And that's what I want us to focus on, because sackcloth was made out of goat's hair, usually. And I don't know if you've ever worn anything with goat's hair, but... uh, I hear, I never have, but I hear it's pretty scratchy and uncomfortable. And so, and it's interesting, if you look at places in the Old Testament, if you just do a a word search on sackcloth, it's kind of interesting. There are several places where they emphasize that when the person put on sackcloth, they put it on next to their skin. So they didn't even wear a t-shirt underneath it. That's what I do with wool sweaters. I put a t-shirt underneath so that it's more comfortable to wear. But no, the, the purpose was to give a sense of need. To express need and also as a reminder of need. If you look at how sackcloth was used and when it was worn in the Old Testament, it was worn, first of all, during times of grief and mourning. And sometimes that's the biggest disaster we can face in life, isn't it? Is to lose a loved one. And so, in the face of that disaster, they would wear sackcloths to express that this is a time of great mourning and grief. Second kind of circumstance where sackcloth would be put on is during a time of repentance. When there was great conviction of sin, either personal or national sin, and they would put on sackcloth to express this humble, repentant attitude in the heart. And then thirdly, other circumstances where they put on sackcloth is when there was a time of incredible need. When the people felt helpless. And so obviously the most direct Meaning here for Hezekiah, and interestingly, not only Hezekiah, it says that his top-ranking officers that he sends out in a delegation, they're also wearing sackcloth. It says the priests were wearing sackcloth. Commentators think there's a good chance that everybody in Jerusalem was wearing sackcloth because Hezekiah wanted this to express the hearts of the people. Mourning, grieving, repentance, and desperate need. That's what that wardrobe communicated. That's what was in the heart of Hezekiah that he wanted to express. And even though we don't wear sackcloth, I do wonder, is there something in the life of the church that corresponds to sackcloth? 
my mind goes to fasting. Fasting is practiced in the New Testament. I do believe that fasting is meant to be an ongoing spiritual discipline among believers in New Covenant times. And there's some real similarity there, isn't there? That we deprive our body of something that it normally needs. We go without something. And it's, it's not self-punishment. People misunderstand fasting sometimes. It, if you fast because you're repentant or feel in desperate need of grace, you, you fast as a way of punishing yourself. That's not what it's about. It's about acknowledging that you need God. You don't need food the way you need God. That you depend upon him and his grace, not upon anything in this world. It's a reminder. Yes, it makes us uncomfortable, but the uncomfortableness is to remind us of how much we hunger for God and his grace. And I think that when life gets tough, when you face the trials, the tribulations, the disasters, the tragedies of life, it's very appropriate to respond to that with fasting for the same reasons that Hezekiah put on sackcloth. Putting on sackcloth or fasting means I am grieving, I am suffering, and I'm looking to the Lord. I am searching my mind and my heart for any unconfessed sin because often the Lord uses tragedies, not necessarily, the scripture tells us he uses it as discipline for his children. It's not to punish us, but he'll use the trials and tribulations of life to make us search our minds and our hearts to say, is there unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with? Or maybe just the sin of being self-reliant. And I need to depend upon the Lord more. Fasting is an appropriate response to great difficulties in life because it's an expression of humility and dependence upon the Lord. It's interesting that Hezekiah does not respond the way that superheroes respond in the movies. He doesn't stand up in front of the crowd and beat his chest and say, I will deliver you. He does the exact opposite. As our Lord Jesus said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And James quotes the Lord Jesus saying that, and he goes on to say, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I don't know if you've noticed it, but in comparison to church history, there's not a lot of fasting in 21st century American Christianity. And I think that reflects something. It reflects our dependence upon our own flesh, upon our own abilities, our self-reliance. It shows that we in our hearts are not as conscious of our need of the Lord and his grace as we should be. And that's what times of peace and prosperity does to people. It weakens the faith. It makes us soft. It makes us unprepared for the tragedies, disasters, trials, and tribulations that are going to come. Especially in times of peace and prosperity and wealth and comfort, I think we ought to fast so that we can be prepared to respond to the tragedies of life in faith like Hezekiah did. Secondly, notice that Hezekiah goes to the temple. Facing this desperate situation, where does he go? He goes to the temple. Now that's interesting because from our studies, what was the last time we saw Hezekiah going into the temple? What was he going to do? He was going there to empty the treasuries, to take all the silver out of the treasuries of the temple 
and to strip the gold off the doors and the doorposts of the temple so that he could make a big gift to the king of Assyria in the hope of pacifying him, in the hope of buying favor from him so that he might choose not to attack Jerusalem. That was something he did in the flesh. You remember how Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, responded to that. He said thanks and then demanded absolute total surrender. Now Hezekiah goes to the temple to seek the Lord, to seek the face of God. That's why he goes to the temple to worship, to seek assurance in his presence. He goes to the temple to offer the blood sacrifices, the sacrifices of atonement that the law of Moses had prescribed from the mouth of God. He goes to the temple to be reassured of the Lord's grace and forgiveness And the promises, the covenant promises that God had given to his people. He goes to seek the face of God. He's got nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else he can turn. And so he goes to the temple empty-handed. I hope you come to church empty-handed every Sunday. Empty-handed, recognizing you've got nothing to offer God. You're coming for grace. You're coming to be renewed in the grace that he offers through Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord puts us in helpless situations in order to kill our pride and to teach us to rely upon him and not upon ourselves. I don't know what kind of helpless situations you're facing. Maybe it's something that your boss has control of that you have no control over. Maybe it's something your parents have control of that you don't have any control over. Maybe it's something your spouse has control of that you don't have control over. I think of a, of, a, of a family relationship in my family where I want nothing more in my life than for this family member to come and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and look to him for forgiveness and salvation. But this family member has rejected it over and over and over again to the point where I know that if I even bring up the name of Jesus, it's only going to drive him farther away. That's feeling helpless. When there's nothing you want more, you would give your life, not just your left arm, but you'd give your life to have something happen. But even the things that you would do to try to make it happen only make the the situation worse. That's helplessness. And what I've learned through that helplessness is, is that my only recourse is to go to the temple. My only recourse is to seek the face of God. My only recourse is prayer. Because the Lord is the only one who can deliver and help in that situation. And so I'd ask you this morning, who or what do you go to? Do you run to when you face the small or large trials and tribulations of your life? Who or what do you run to? And will those things be there to deliver you when the real big tragedies happen? How do you deal with stress and anxiety and disappointment in life? Where do you run to? Hezekiah teaches us to run to the temple, to run to where the Lord meets with his people, to seek the face of God. Thirdly, look at what Hezekiah does after going to the temple. He sends out a delegation to hear a word from the Lord. Verse 2, he sends these two officers that we met back in the last chapter and some of the leading priests to go to the prophet Isaiah. 
Isaiah is one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. And it's interesting, this is the first time he's mentioned in the book of First or Second Kings. But he's been around since the time of Hezekiah's grandfather because he was called to be a prophet in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was Hezekiah's grandfather. So he's been faithfully proclaiming the word of God for a long time. And Hezekiah wants a word from the Lord. He wants to know what God has to say about this situation that he's facing. Hezekiah's hope and reliance upon Isaiah, understand, is a hope and reliance upon the Lord. As he hopes to hear a word from Isaiah, what he's really hoping for is the word of God to speak to him. And with his, his, with his hope and reliance upon the word of God, he's actually relying upon the Lord himself. And so when we face tragedies, disasters, even the small disasters of life, we find God by his word. He speaks to us through his word. And there's nothing like a crisis or a disaster to create dependence upon scripture. We are to be a people who depend upon the word of God. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I almost died when I was a brand new believer when I was 18 years old. I was driving to work early one morning, and I was distracted by something on my dashboard in my car that wasn't working. And when I looked up from the dashboard, all I could see in my, in my uh, windshield, all I could see was the color red. That's because I was just about to hit the front of a tractor-trailer truck. And I still, I, I wish there was a videotape of how it happened, because I still don't know how it happened. But all I know is I didn't have time to hit the brakes. All I did was flip the w- steering wheel to the right as hard as I could. And I do know that what, the reason I didn't hit the tra- tractor-trailer head-on is because he had started to jackknife. And so he was twisting, his cab of his truck was twisting away from me, and I actually hit the side of his truck, and, and his tires were so tall that actually my car hit his tires, because the whole side of my car, once after the collision, was black from his tires. And I, it basically just ripped off the side of my car, but it was all black, but I was untouched, I was unscratched. I bounced to the other side of the road, drove down a little ways, pulled off, could hardly breathe, I was so traumatized by it, I looked around. The truck had jackknifed and hit the bank. The driver ended up being slightly hurt, but okay. And I was okay. Stayed at the accident scene for a while, and then my dad took me home. And I don't know what shock feels like. If I've experienced shock, that's the closest I've ever been to it. Because I just, it's like my emotions were, all the circuits in my emotions were blown. I just, I I knew I should be feeling this incredible thing, but I, I didn't feel anything. And I couldn't think straight. My mind felt blank. And I was just laying there in my bed staring at the ceiling. But a thought came to me as a brand new believer who knew nothing about scripture. It's like, maybe God has a word for you. Maybe God has something to say to you. And so I picked up the Bible on my nightstand beside my bed. And I opened up, and I don't advocate this as a way of doing Bible study or devotions. But I stuck my finger in the middle of the Bible and opened it up wherever it fell open. And lo and behold, it fell open to Psalm 116. Let me read that to you. These are the first words that that I processed as I came out of this this shock, whatever I was in. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. 
The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. The Lord speaks to us by his word. When we face disaster, when we face great trials, that's when his word gets tested. And from that point on, for the rest of my life, every time, his word has proven to be true and faithful. So, how do you prepare for tragedy and disaster? Make it your bent, your habit, your impulse, your instinct to run to the word of God. To hear a word from God when tragedy comes. I want you to notice the helplessness and desperation in Hezekiah's message to Isaiah. He quotes what must have been a popular proverb. Here's what he says. Children have come to the point of birth and there's no strength to bring them forth. Now I think what he's saying there, and I I base this in my own observational experience... My wife had five kids. I watched five children being born. Now I've had two daughters. I've watched them go through the process of preparing to give birth. And so I have not experienced this myself, but I have watched it happen where for six hours, 12 hours, 18 hours, 24 hours, this beloved woman, either my wife or my daughter, is just fighting this huge battle, going through all kinds of pain, just totally wiped out. Every emotion, every physical ounce of energy has been drained out of her. And then the doctor comes in and says, okay, it's time to deliver the baby. And I have seen that look on my wife and my daughter's face. Like, I can't do it. I can't do it. And that's, I think, is the moment that that this proverb is alluding to. That moment to say, I'm spent. I've got nothing to offer to this situation. I've got no resources. Lord, Get me through this. Lord, be there. Help me. Lead me through this. Hezekiah is saying that he's at the end of his resources and his only hope is that the Lord deliver because he can't. I also want you to notice the humility and the plea for grace in Hezekiah's message. Look at verse 4. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Now, what does he mean that the Lord may have heard what the taunts of the king of Assyria were? Well, he's not expressing any doubt here in the omniscience of God. He knows that God heard what was said. What he's doing is he's allowing for the possibility that God may not deliver. He refuses to presume upon the grace of God. He understands that he himself and Jerusalem deserve nothing from God. That if God intervenes here, it's going to be because God shows grace. That God is under no obligation to deliver Jerusalem or Hezekiah. You know, and I've heard a lot of Christians in the midst of trials, tribulations, difficulties, disasters, who make prayers that sound like demands. God, you must deliver me. 
God, if you're really a God of love, you're really a God of power, you must get me out of this situation. That's not the attitude that Hezekiah had. Hezekiah said, Lord, maybe you will deliver. I'm seeking deliverance from you, but you're under no obligation to do so. And besides that, I know that if you do not deliver me from the king of Assyria, you will deliver me from sin and death. That was the confidence he had in the covenant of grace that the Lord had given to his people. Fourth step in preparing, and as we try to prepare for disaster in life, what did Hezekiah do after that? He sought God's glory and not his own. Do you notice that his concern wasn't that his name and his glory was being mocked? He doesn't even acknowledge that. He doesn't even recognize that, even though the king of Assyria had taunted and mocked Hezekiah and his faith. His concern was that the living God was being mocked. Remember, it's, we said earlier that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is what it says in, in uh, 2 Kings 18. Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. You see, this is the same kind of faith that David had. David, who stood before the giant Goliath, who he could not humanly think of beating, but he said about this taunting enemy of the people of God, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The one who said, David, who said, the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. You see, for David and for Hezekiah, it's about the glory of God. That's what he was concerned about, not his own glory. And then notice at the end of verse 4, Hezekiah asked for Isaiah to lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. The remnant, that's a key term in the Old Testament. That's God's promise. God promised that he would preserve a remnant over and over again. That no matter how disobedient and rebellious his people came as a whole, he would always preserve a remnant. And so here is Hezekiah saying, I recognize we're at that point, Lord. Your your covenant promises are hanging by a thread here, humanly speaking. So he says to Isaiah, please pray that the Lord will deliver this remnant so that his promises may be fulfilled. And again, it's all about the glory of God. That's the way Moses, remember when Moses went and interceded for the people of God on Mount Sinai after they had worshipped around the golden calves at the foot of Mount Sinai while he was receiving the law. They were worshipping idols at the foot of Mount Sinai. And so God says, I'm going to destroy them. I've had it. I'm going to destroy them. And and Moses goes to intercede just as as a motto and a foreshadowing of Christ's intercession for us. And he he intercedes before the, the Father and he says, Don't do this because the nations aren't going to understand. The nations are going to say, why did he deliver his people just to destroy them in the wilderness? Moses' concern was for the glory of God and the reputation of God. That's what he was concerned for. And he says, you promised. You promised that you would deliver your people. And so I'm asking you to be true to your promise. And the Lord honored the faith of Moses, just as he honors the faith of Hezekiah here. The first petition of a person who really has faith in the Lord when you face trial and disaster is the same first petition that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Yes, we can go ahead and ask for him to deliver us in earthly terms. Give us our, today our daily bread. 
Go ahead and deliver us from temptation. We can make all those petitions, but the first one is the most important. Lord, whatever you may do, may your name be considered holy. May you be glorified. Our goal in being delivered, when we come to the Lord, as we seek the Lord in our trials and tribulations, our goal in being delivered shouldn't be to have our earthly health and wealth and comfort restored. Because you know what? The king of Assyria offered that to the people of Jerusalem. He offered them a a place of peace and prosperity in this world if they were to trust in him and go over to his side. We need to have the goal and purpose of having the Lord glorified in us and through us. And we understand that sometimes that means that we're going to suffer. Because sometimes the only reason that we're going through a trial and difficulty and facing a disaster is because the Lord intends to be glorified through the way that we endure by faith. And so the way you prepare for the coming disasters is to make sure that that's what you live for every day, is for the glory of the Lord and not your own glory. Do you remember the defining characteristic of Hezekiah? Back in the beginning of chapter 18, it says, He trusted in the Lord and held fast to him. That trust given by God that became the defining characteristic of Hezekiah got tested when he was ridiculed for trusting in the Lord. And it got tested when his imminent destruction is threatened against him. How did he respond? He put on sackcloth. He humbled himself before the Lord, suffered openly before the Lord, grieved, searched his heart and mind to repent of unconfessed sin, and acknowledged how desperately he needed the Lord in the situation. Secondly, he went to the temple. He sought the Lord. He drew near to the Lord. He sought his strength and the grace he needed in the presence of the Lord. Thirdly, he sought out the word of God through the prophet Isaiah. It's because it's in the word of God that you find the unseen deliverance that's promised in the future. That's where, the, that's where you find it. It's in the word of God, in God's promises. And then finally, he made sure that he was seeking the glory of God and not his own glory. His goal was God-centered, not self-centered. Well, just briefly to look at verses 6 and 7, you see there Isaiah gives a response from the Lord. Here's the word from the Lord that Isaiah gave to him. First of all, he gives him a command. He says, do not be afraid. And I'm struck by the fact that, that's, that fear is the opposite of faith. He's saying, Hezekiah, I've given you the gift of faith. Abide in your faith. Do not be afraid. But then he gives a prophecy. The Lord says to Hezekiah, I'm going to do two things. He's going to do something internally to the king of Assyria and something externally to the king of Assyria. Internally, he's going to put a spirit in him. And it doesn't define what that spirit is, but in the context of the Old Testament, that usually when you read something like that, that the Lord puts a spirit in somebody, somehow internally, the Lord messes with his emotions, takes away his confidence, instills fear within him. Somehow, you know, again, without the Lord being the author of sins, still somehow he intervenes internally to cause the sinful heart of the king of Assyria to become fearful. What a contrast to the arrogance we saw in the last chapter. So he he becomes filled with fear, and then he hears a report, a rumor. And we're not entirely sure what the rumor is. It says, basically, the Lord tells him that he is going to return to his capital city, and then there he's going to be assassinated. 
Now, it's po- two possibilities, I think, are the two best possibilities, is that the rumor, first of all, could be what it says in verse 9, that he hears a report about Tirhaka, the king of Cush. Now, Cush was Ethiopia, but Tirhaka Tir- was the king of Ethiopia who actually became a great Egyptian pharaoh and was actually in the last dynasty that ruled over Egypt. So it's really, again, we're talking about the empire of Egypt, that somehow these forces were going to come against the king of Assyria and pull him away from the threat that he was to Jerusalem. And so the idea being that he temporarily departs to take care of of, uh, the nation of Egypt and then comes back again, as we'll see, to lay the same threat before Jerusalem again. And then later, a little spoiler alert here, later he gets assassinated by his own people at the end of the biblical account. The other possibility is that actually the rumor that's referred to is the rumor, and again, another spoiler alert, please come back and hear it anyway, but I'm going to tell you what happens at the end. At the end, the massive armies of Assyria get destroyed. And so one theory is that that's the report he hears. His armies have been destroyed, he goes back to his home country, and then is assassinated. That's how everything wraps up. That's what the Lord's deliverance is going to look like. But I want you to end with this thought. We're at another cliffhanger, aren't we? Hezekiah's circumstances haven't changed. He's still a very weak victim in the face of a massive army. His circumstances haven't changed. What has changed? The Lord has given him a promise. The Lord has promised he would deliver. And that strengthened Hezekiah's faith. I'm here to tell you that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are living by a promise of deliverance too. No matter what your circumstances are, good or bad, whether you go through disaster or you're delivered from disaster, you live by a promise of deliverance. Jesus Christ has died for your sins, has been raised from the dead. He reigns on high and is sovereign over all the circumstances of your life. And after he has worked all the good and bad circumstances of your life for his perfect plan, he will return and he will deliver you completely from sin and death and deliver you into his eternal kingdom. We can't see that with our eyes. It's an unseen promise of deliverance, but we live by it. We live by it with the faith that he has given us as a gift. So let me close by reading to you again a few of those verses from Romans 8. First of all, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then skipping down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, we are, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, focus 
our eyes on the unseen. Lord, we do live in a time of peace and prosperity. And even the trials and tribulations and difficulties and disasters that we face are so minimal compared to what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing even now, let alone in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that in this time of ease and comfort, you would enable us to grow in our faith, to prepare, to be able to respond in faith, no matter what may come. May your grace make it happen, and may it all be to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.